Good morning. If you take out your Bibles and turn out, turn them to Revelation chapter 3 and take out your message outline. This is the last message in our series, Acceptable Sins in Our World. These are the sins that many times we consider okay. And uh, so this is the last Sunday. Aren't you glad it's the last Sunday, though? Because these have been kind of convicting. I don't know about you, but they've been kind of convicting, right? Been kind of convicting looking at the sins and stuff like that. I've had many people come up to me and ask me questions about them. The sin we're going to talk about today, the Bible says it makes Jesus want to, to vomit, that he wants to vomit. And so we're going to be talking about murder. We're going to be talking about rape. We're going to be talking about child abuse, serial killing, uh, or, or, or any of those kind of things. It's none of those. The sin that makes Jesus want to vomit, it's our complacency. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on. This is the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and it's written by the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. And John, as he's writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he's about the age of 90 to 95 years old, okay? And it's about the same time period. It's about 90 to 95 A.D., and uh, the Roman Empire at the time is a guy by the name of Domitian. He's as ruthless as Nero was in the 60s. And according to Revelation chapter 1, John the Apostle, for the sake of the gospel, for proclaiming the gospel, is to be exiled to the island of Patmos. And I can only imagine the motivation of Domitian in doing this, the last of the living apostles. He puts him on this deserted island to silence him, not realizing that God was going to show John a vision, and John was going to write this down in book form, and it was going to be circulated around the world to millions and millions of people who are going to read it over the next 20 centuries we're going to read this. Uh, they were going to see, this is the only book of the Bible where it says that you are blessed if you read it. it. You're blessed if you read it. In the first chapter of the book, John sees this vision of Jesus, and Jesus is wearing a white robe, and he has eyes like blazing fire, and he's standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And, and I like that image because those lampstands are described, those seven golden lampstands described in Revelation chapter 1, representing the seven churches of Asia Minor. So the metaphor is beautiful because a church is a lampstand. It's supposed to be shining the light of the gospel in its community. That's the kind of representation. So these seven churches that he's talking about, Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Sardis, and Thyatira, and all those, those seven churches, Jesus is going to look at them and evaluate them with eyes of blazing fire is what the Bible says. And he's going to evaluate the church, and he's going to dictate a letter to John, John's going to write the letter to the church, and it will be circulated to the other churches, and then eventually to us. And when he evaluates the church, the letter will take this form, as you read each one of these. The letter, the first part of it will be a greeting, and it will be a description of Jesus. The second part will be a commendation. This is what the church is doing right. The third part will be a condemnation. This is what they're doing wrong. This is where, where they're falling short. The fourth part is going to be about what you're doing wrong. It's the correction the correction here, and it's usually somewhere there's going to be the word repent. The fifth is the part is the promise, and it will usually close with those who have an ear, let them hear, right? We're going to be looking at the church of Laodicea, and it starts in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, so if you could turn your Bibles there, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, and here's the introduction where he gives the description of Jesus in verse 14, the beginning of verse 14, so let's look at it. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of amen. Stop right there. Amen means, let it be so, let it be established. It could be translated, yes. 
When it's referring to Jesus, it means the reliable one, the trustworthy one, what it means there. The reliable one, the trustworthy one. He goes on, he says, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Some Bible translates that the beginning of God's creation, and some cult groups have taken those words, the beginning of God's creation, to teach that Jesus was part of God's creation. That's not right. But when the wording itself there means so much more, it means Jesus was the source of God's creation. Remember, we're reading Scripture. We're supposed to reference it with other passages in the Bible. And if you go to Colossians 1, it's very clear, very clear in Colossians 1, when it talks about Jesus as being the creator, and he spoke all things to existence, and he holds every, all things by his powerful word. Uh, I, I, he holds all things, sustains them, and, and holds all things in his hand, it talks about. So Jesus is talking about himself, the amen, and the trustworthy one in this passage talking about himself, giving the description of him. And this is written to the church, uh, written to a group of believers in a town called Laodicea. Laodicea is on the crossroads of a north-south road and a west-east road. It's a banking center. It's a very wealthy area. And so Jesus is going to share with them three things. If you have your outline, three things concerning complacency that they have to do. The first one, he says this, complacency is condemned. He condemns it. It's condemned. Let's read the first part of verse 15. He says, I know your deeds. Stop there. I know your deeds. I believe that if Jesus stood in the midst of those seven churches of Asia Minor and he evaluates them, I still believe he does that today, right? So we have to look at this. I kind of take this personalized. When he says, when he says at crossroads, I know your deeds. I know your works. And then what would he say next? What would he say next to us? Hey, Jesus knows everything about a church without ever attending an annual meeting or without ever going to an elder meeting. He knows it all. So his evaluation is the one we go with, right? By the way, with this church in Laodicea, if you look closely, there is no commendation. There's no commendation that he gives there. He skips that part. There, either, there isn't anything to commend them about, or he leaves it blank because he wants to get their attention right away. And he goes right into the condemnation. This is what you're doing wrong. Read second part of verse 15 and 16. He says that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This causes us to ask a lot of questions because it's pretty graphic. To have Jesus spit something out of his mouth, we got to know, what is he talking about here? In that culture and similar to our culture, when we look at things, what was acceptable what was pleasing, either hot or cold, right? We like hot or cold. Nobody like, really likes things that are lukewarm. We like hot or cold. Probably 30 to 40 years ago, if you heard a pastor preach this message, he would say, it's good to be hot. You want to be hot. Cold is bad. Lukewarm is not good. But in other words, to be hot as a believer in Jesus Christ, to be cold as an unbeliever. But that's not what this passage is saying. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is saying in this passage, I'd rather have you hot or cold. The, both of them are acceptable, but lukewarm is not, he's saying. Lukewarm is not acceptable. To be lukewarm, he says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. In the language there, the wording there in the original is more graphic, it's more stronger, and it's almost like I want to vomit you out of my mouth is what Jesus is saying. You make me so nauseated of what you're doing. So the sin that makes Jesus want to vomit, it's not adultery, it's not murder, it's the one we find socially acceptable it's being complacent as a Christian. It's being lukewarm as a Christian. That's the one that makes Jesus sick to his stomach, nauseated when he sees us doing that. 
It's where we get to the place in our life, in our life spiritually where we think or we're self-sufficient and we, we kind of say that we need nothing. We're rich. I don't need a thing from you, Jesus, is what we say. We may not say that, but that's the way we act. Where we're lukewarm, where we're complacent as Christians. I don't need a thing. And he's going he's to describe that in the next few verses. By the way, we live in the same in Illinois, don't we? It, when it's cold. When winter sometimes starts in October here in Illinois, right, and runs all the way up to May, and it's real cold outside, we, we don't want something that's lukewarm. We want something that's hot, like a hot, uh, hot tea, hot uh, coffee, hot chocolate, hot cider, hot soup. We want something like that. In days like today, when it's going to be hot, what do we want? We want something cold, real cold, right? Like iced tea, iced lemonade, I Diet Coke, whatever you drink, right? So cold or hot, those are acceptable, but lukewarm's not. Nobody likes lukewarm. So what is lukewarm? He goes on to describe it in verse 17, what lukewarm is. He said, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, you are blind and naked. The city of Laodicea was known for three things. It was known as a banking center. It had lots of money. It was a commercial center on those crossroads. About 35 years earlier, before this was written, there was an earthquake in 60 AD that wiped out the city of Laodicea. And the Laodiceans were able to rebuild the city without any financial help from the Roman Empire. They were self-sufficient. They were a very wealthy city. The second thing they were known for was their textile industry. They were known for their cloths and their dyes and able to put that together with the clothes. They were known as a fashion center, fashion center. The third thing they were known for was a medical school that was founded in that city, uh, specializing especially in the diseases of the eyes. And that's what they were known for. And Jesus is going to touch on those three things and what they were known for. He says, you say we are rich, I required wealth, and do not need a thing. But when Jesus does the audit, he says something different. This is what he says to him. But you do not realize that you're wretched, you're pitiful, then here's the three things. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. He's going to hit on him again a little later. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. The second thing concerning complacency is complacency is a spiritual condition. It's a spiritual condition. What happened to them, there was a time in their life, like many of our lives, where someone shared with you the gospel message, right? It, it might have been a mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, or it might have been a brother or sister, someone who loved you. It might have been like at a Billy Graham crusade or, or somebody preaching the gospel. It might have been at a vacation Bible school or, or some kind of summer camp or something like that. Or it might have been in a service like this where you heard the gospel, mes gospel message preached, where they shared with you your situation, they were lost, and you were separated from God because of your sin. And the whole world, uh, because of the fall in the garden with Adam and Eve, because they sinned, has been estranged from God ever since then. We've been separated. And God is holy, just, righteous, and perfect in all his ways, and we are sinners. And there's no way that we and I, you and I or anybody can approach God. There's no way that we can go to God. None of our righteous acts are able to build us to God. So there's nothing we could do about it. So God came down to us. And God sent his son, Jesus, who's God, who's the son of God, who came to this earth, took on the form of a human being, and he lived this life, and he never sinned. And then he went to the cross, and he died on the cross for our sins. For the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, right? And so on that day, when you heard the gospel message, it may have been the seventh time 
the, the 13th time or the 37th time, or it might have been the first time you ever heard the gospel message, that morning it made, or that day it made so much sense to you that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by faith. You asked God to forgive all of your sins, right? And that day changed you. You were translated from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, and you were going to live for Jesus the rest of your days, right? Because you know you had heaven secured because of the cross of Jesus Christ. You had the promise of the cross, and it made everything right. You were a new man and a new woman, right? And you're going to live differently. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, something happened to some of us, not all of us, but some of us, where it may have been other priorities got mixed in there, but maybe we, we had different dreams, new dreams, or another vision, or our own agenda. And the things that were once important to us are still important to us, but not as important as they used to be in our lives. Not as important. Jesus wasn't as important as he used to be, that I had this passion and a fire for Jesus like I used to be. And other things got in the way of this, of us coming and worshiping God and coming to church and being a part of that. The things of this world kind of take priority now over the, the things of the kingdom of heaven. And now I don't have a priority to share with others about Jesus or, or to learn the Bible or to come to church like I once did. Like I once did. I don't have that. And we know just enough about God in our lives to know that if we get in trouble, God is going to be there. Does that resonate with anybody? That's complacency. It's a spiritual condition. It's a sin of complacency. Where we think we're okay, and we're not realizing that we're not and we don't want to change. See, that's the thing about complacency, being lukewarm. Sometimes we don't know we're lukewarm. Sometimes we don't know we're complacent. And we think we're all right. We look at ourselves, we're all right. We make all kinds of excuses why we don't get involved, why we don't go to church, why we don't do this, why we don't serve, why we're not reading the Bible, why we're not praying. We're making all kinds of excuses. I'm busy. I got this, this coming in. And we say all these other things are good, but we put God on the back burner. We make all kinds of excuses about those kind of things. And, and all that, and we don't realize what that is. You're describing is being lukewarm, that I'm complacent to God. And it's a sin in our lives. We make all kinds of excuses. We try to say we're on fire, but we're not. Uh, Amos, the prophet in the Old Testament, in Amos chapter 6, verse 1, says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. I wish I could tell you this morning as a pastor of Crossroads Community Church that I never had a day in my life where I wasn't complacent. Matter of fact, I've had many days in my life where I've been complacent, and I'm not proud of them, but I have. I've had many days in my life, and if we're honest with ourselves, most of us here have probably had days in our lives where we've been complacent in our lives, right? And it's not that we like being there, but we go in and out of complacency many times. If we shouldn't want to be there. We shouldn't want to stay there for sure. None of us should want to stay there, but we find ourselves there parked in that complacency spot sometimes. And what Jesus says, he says this, I hate this. I hate when you're there. I died for you so we can live together, so I can live my life in and through you. But you have your own agenda, and that makes me nauseated. I'm nauseated to see you like this. I do not like it. One of the worst train crashes in history took place on March 2nd, 1944. It took place in Italy. And this is the day where they had these long passenger trains, real long passenger trains. And this particular train had a locomotive on the front, had a locomotive on the back, and it was going, and it was approaching and got into the tunnel, the Del Army Tunnel in Italy, and the front locomotive stalled out right there while they're all inside of this big, long tunnel. So the rear locomotive, the engineer back there, started up the locomotive, and he started up, up, and he started going reverse. But at the same time, the locomotive in front started up, and he's, he got his engine going, and he was going in the opposite direction. So they're pulling in our opposite direction, 
Meanwhile, all this smoke, carbon monoxide, was filling up in the tunnel. And that day, over 500 people died of carbon monoxide poisoning in that tunnel, of going in the opposite direction. And that's the way our hearts is oftentimes. We're pulled in the opposite direction, and what I call that is complacency. We're allowing ourselves to be pulled in opposite direction. We're be, being lukewarm. Where we're living in this world, we're not supposed to be a part of it. We're supposed to be messengers of God, and our citizenship is in heaven. So what do we do when we're like this? What do we do? How do, how do we get out of this? What do we do about it? And that's our third point in our outline. Third thing concerning complacency. Complacency needs to be confessed. We need to confess it. Notice the next verse. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can be rich. Now he's hitting those three points again. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Jesus said to them, he says, buy from me gold refined by fire, not just gold. He says, I am the solution for you. I'm the solution, he goes. You find me the solution. Not just any gold, gold you can find in Laodicea. He said, this is gold refined by fire. What it is, it's approved by God. So you can be rich, not rich by measured in dollars and cents or anything like that, he's saying, but have white clothes. You have your own garments, but the garments I'm going to give you, you're never going to have to replace. And so Jesus is saying, I am the solution. I'm the solution for you, not your, the th three things you're known for. So he's focusing on those three touch points for the city of Laodicea that they were so proud of, those accomplishments that they made in their city. And Jesus says, take those things away, because what I can give you will drive you from complacency and bring repentance to you. And the banking center won't do it. Your textile industry won't do it. Your medical school won't do it. Then he goes on to verse 19, which is a very powerful verse. And I know when you're listening to messages that you go in and out, right? Because I do that. When I'm listening to someone speak, you go in and out, your mind wanders, right? Let's be honest, we do that. And maybe right now you're out. I'm asking you all to come in. Listen, listen right now. Look, some of you are smiling at me because you know I'm right. <laughs> come on in and listen to me because these next two verses are very powerful and they're the solution that he gives us. He gives us right here. He says in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. He's saying the same thing, and Hebrews chapter 12 says the same thing. This is really important for us to know. Jesus says this. He says, okay, you're in a condition that's repulsive to me. You're lukewarm. You're complacency. I love you. I died for you. I don't like seeing you like this. I'd rather see you in any other condition than in sin. Therefore, I'm going to discipline to get your attention. I'm going to rebuke you, to bring you to repentance, so you and I can enjoy that fellowship again. You've got to love that verse. You say, who likes discipline? Nobody likes discipline, but the end of discipline, according to Hebrews chapter 12, it produces a peaceful fruit of righteousness, and that's what we want. That's what God wants to produce, a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And aren't you glad that we have Heavenly Father in Jesus who loves us enough to discipline us? say yes. Say yes. I'm very glad. I'm very glad we have someone who loves us, that pursues us. He doesn't let us just go out there all by ourselves, but he pursues us to bring us back to himself because he loves us. He loves us. Notice the next verse, verse 20, our memory verse. Many of you probably know this verse, where it says, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That verse for many people has been a verse that's to depict salvation. It's not a bad verse for that. It's the same kind of picture for that. 
but it's probably not the emphasis that John had in mind when he wrote it or when Jesus dictated. It's not the emphasis because he's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to followers of Jesus Christ. He's writing to a church or a church that had become complacent. That, 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 that other things that become more important than their walk with Jesus is, is what he's talking about here. A church, believers in Jesus Christ, it could be written to us. And the picture is, you've probably seen the picture, where Jesus is knocking on the door, and there's no door handle on the side he's knocking, right? You've seen the picture, right? You guys ever seen the picture where he's knocking on the door? Somebody, nobody's ever seen it? Okay, some have seen it. So a couple of you have seen that picture, but it's a picture. And it's a picture sometimes of salvation. But I want you to imagine in the way the passage, according to the scripture here, that Jesus is knocking on the door, there's no handle, but on the other side of that door are complacent Christians, because that's who he's talking to, who have made more things important than walking with Jesus. And Jesus is knocking on the door. We're, we're worship. We're, we're coming worship and come to church when we can fit in into our schedule, right? And, and we'll pray when, if I remember. I mean, to read my Bible if I remember. To pray if I, if I need it. I'll pray if I have to. I'll pray for something that comes up in my life. To share Christ with someone? No, probably not. Probably not doing all those things. So we're in our lazy boy. Picture us in our lazy boy. It's hot today. So we got there our iced tea. We got our iced lemonade. And there's a knocking at the door. And we're thinking, man, who is bothering me, right? That's what we do. Somebody's knocking at the door. And it says, Jesus. And our response to Jesus, we are rich. We don't need anything from you. That's what they're saying. That's what a complacent person says. Jesus is knocking at the door. We're rich. I don't need anything from you. What are you knocking on my door for? And Jesus continues to knock on the door. And he says, open the door, open the door. Because you are poor, you're wretched, you're blind, and you're naked. Open the door, open the door is what he's saying. What I find amazing is that Jesus loves us so much that he's actually knocking on the door. Why would he knock on the door? It seems like, hey, they don't want to come to me? That's fine. But he's knocking on the door. He loves the people who are acting in such a way that nauseates him, that makes him sick to his stomach, that he wants to vomit. And he continues to knock. Why? Because he loves us. That's called love. He loves us that much. The things that make him sick that we're doing he still pursues us, and he's knocking on the door. We're not knocking on his door. He's knocking on our door. That's Jesus. That's the picture of Jesus because he loves us. That's what love is. And he's knocking on the door, and he says, open the door, open the door. And he says, I want to come in, not to save you because you're already saved. I want to come in and have communion and fellowship with you. That's what he wants. He says, I want to come in and have communion and fellowship. And so many in our world, so many Christians, are willing to leave Jesus out on the porch. They'll turn the light on for him, but they won't open the door. They don't open the door. And, and to open the door simply means we repent, and we say, uh, forgive me of the sin. Not that we've done major sin, but the big sin that we've done. And so many Christians do this. They live in the Christian life without Jesus. That's what they're doing. So many Christians, so many Christians do this. They live the Christian life without Jesus. They think they can live it. Oh, yeah, God, I got you, but now I got my own priorities. And I'm doing my own thing. Oh, I'll tell people I'm Christian, but they're not living the life. And if you looked at their life, you would see no difference in their life than something unbeliever. You see no difference in their life, the way they act, the way they talk, the way they speak, their motivation. Their you don't see anything about them that's different. And so they're living the Christian life without Jesus if we get from our chair, we get up from our chair, what does it take for us to get us chair and open the door? We get up from the chair, we open the door, 
the Bible says that Jesus will come in and he will live with us and he will live through us. And that's what Jesus wants to do with all of us. He wants to live in us and live through us, every one of us here. So let me give you the promise, finish with the promise in verse 21 and 22. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's it th- what does it take to get up from the lazy boy and open the door? To, to, I mean, what does it take to get from the lazy boy to a throne, to the throne? What does it take? He says, open the door. Just open the door and confess two places. That's all it takes. And the Bible says that Jesus will come in and be with you, commune with you, and fellowship with you. He promised that. What I wondered as I was preparing for this message was, how am I going to preach this message when I've had times of my own complacency? And I thought, how am I going to preach this message when probably most of the people there had times of complacency in their hearts? And I thought, maybe I should just open up and have everyone just come forward who's had uh, times of complacency in their own heart. And I thought, that'd probably be everyone, right? Probably every one of us would have to come forward and say that. So I thought, what if we just did it in our own seats, right where we're at, right where we're at, and we just come before God this morning, and we confess our hearts of complacency. The, the thing about complacency, though, is if you're complacent, you don't know it. Many times you don't know you are. Because you think you're all right following Jesus. But I, I'm going to share with you in, in a moment about what that might look like in your own life. And all you have to do is, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart right now. He's knocking. All you got to do is open up the door. Don't leave him on the porch. Open up the door. Let him in and confess your heart of complacency. That's all you have to do. And so what I want to do is just giving us an opportunity to do that, just to do that this morning where you just confess the sin of complacency. We've all been there at some time in our life, complacent. And, and by the way, this is not the case where I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to pray more. It's not about that. It's not about that at all. This is not, it's not doing more. He didn't say that. That's not what the passage says. And I want to stay according to what the passage said. It just says, open the door. And Jesus says, I'm going to come in. That's all he's saying is, I'm going to come in. And if we open the door, and Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to have fellowship and communion with us, if we open the door and we're sincere in opening the door and let Jesus in, he's going to change our hearts, right? And then our hearts are going to change. And then I'm going to want to be in church every Sunday. I'm going to want to be here. Not because I have to, because I want to. Because I want to worship Him. I'm going to want to get in the Word of God. Not because I have to, because I want to. Because I want to grow and I want to learn about Him. And I want to change. I'm going to want to be in prayer because I want to talk with Him. Not because I have to, because I want to. I'm going to want to serve because that's what followers of Jesus Christ do. I serve in a ministry. I get involved and I'm serving. That's what we do. And if you're here today and you say, well, I'm not doing some of those. Check your heart. Because followers of Jesus, those who walk with Jesus, are doing all those. We're walking with Jesus. We're serving him with our whole hearts. Jesus doesn't want part of your heart. He wants all of you. And he's not satisfied till he has you, all of you. And he's knocking at the door of our lives. He's on the porch knocking. Are we going to let him in or are we going to let him stay out there by himself? He says, invite him in. Invite him in. He'll do the work. He'll do the work. He promises to do the work. If we're sincere and we yield our hearts and minds to him, he will do the work in your life. So what I want you to do this morning is just for us, just to spend a moment of silence. And then I'll close in prayer and then we're going to sing a song. Just between you and God, where we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes, and you just confess any sins of complacency in your heart right now. Okay? That we get right before God. Because we've all been there, guys. Some of you might be there right now. And some might be saying, man, I'm kind of there. I'm, I'm kind of serving, but my heart isn't sold out. I'm not on fire for Christ like I once was. And I realize that. 
need to come back to him. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's spend a few moments of just silence with just us communicating with God, okay? Let's go to Lord and pray. Lord, your word says I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. But I'm so thankful that you're our Lord and Savior and you're faithful and you're true always. He knocks at the door and you never give up. I pray that none of us would leave you on the porch this morning. I pray, Lord, this morning that you might do some wonderful things in our hearts and minds, that we would confess our sins, Lord, and open the door, open the door, so you might work in our hearts and minds and come in and fellowship and commune with us. Lord, our desire, when Jesus looks at our church, that it would be pleasing to you in every way, that it would be pleasing to you not in the church, but in our own lives, Lord. And so, Lord, we, we ask that we would ears to hear and that we would listen this morning to all that you said through your word, that you were saying to the church of Laodicea, you could be saying to us. And so, Lord, we'll open up our hearts and minds. We're asking, Lord, that we would be listening to you. And, Lord, we ask that in the most precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.